Thanks for joining us on episode 1146 of the Inspired Stewardship Podcast. I do challenge you to invest in yourself. You know, I challenge you to invest in others in the future, even though that it is uncertain and the, the paths may sometimes be rocky. But in doing so, I'm hoping that it, it can develop an influence. I'm hoping that it can impact the world, utilizing your time, uh, your talent, and treasures to live out your calling, whatever they may be. It may not even be in the same creative avenue that I've explained, but I'm hoping that it can be general enough to help you come to that conclusion. Having the ability to adapt with faith as your journey progresses is, of course, key. Understanding that root of why you choose to do it in the first place. And in plugging this show, one way to be inspired is to listen to inspired stewardship. Most artists, they believe that art should be as an, an extension of themselves, whether that appeals to a greater purpose or a higher power or, or some societal gain, that's up to them. I can't speak for that. But remember why you did And don't let the, I was going to say negative reception deter you, but also no reception Welcome and thank you for joining us on the Inspired Stewardship Podcast. If you truly desire to become the person who God wants you to be, then you must learn to use your time, your talent, and your treasures for your true calling. In the Inspired Stewardship Podcast, you will learn to invest in yourself, invest in others, and develop your influence so that you can impact the world. In today's interview with Sebastian Shug, I asked Sebastian about his definition of leadership. I also asked Sebastian about how to build your influence in today's world. And I asked Sebastian about speaking and humor and how that builds influence. One reason I like to bring you great interviews like the one you're going to hear today is because of the power in learning from others. Another great way to learn from others is through reading books. But if you're like most people today, you find it hard to find the time to sit down and read. And that's why today's podcast is brought to you by Audible. Go to inspiredstewardship.com slash audible to sign up and you can get a 30-day free trial. There's over 180,000 titles to choose from. And instead of reading, you can listen your way to learn from some of the greatest minds out there. That's inspiredstewardship.com slash audible to get your free trial and listen to great books the same way you're listening to this podcast. Sebastian Robert Shug is an independent multimedia artist currently residing in suburban Burbank, California. He holds a Bachelor of Arts in Communication Studies and Political Science and currently spends his time narrating miscellaneous stories. He started out as a YouTuber back in 2013 and he has worked in podcasting, humor, and public speaking. Welcome to the show, Sebastian. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> so, Sebastian, one thing that people think of as developing their influence is being a leader in their field, being a leader in their company, being a leader, whatever, however that is. And yet, over the years, I've learned that leader, leadership, these are words that we use all the time, and yet we often mean very different things when we say them. So right. how would you define the word leadership? Leadership is not so much a title, more so is a certain grab bag of personality traits that I think others 
hover to and identify you as. I think that there's a stark contrast between people who self-proclaim themselves as leaders <laughs> and individuals who gravitate around an individual proclaiming that they are a leader. One of those, the latter of which does not come with a substantial ego. And that's something that I've been, that I had been trying to avoid for the longest time. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not saying that it didn't rear its ugly head every now and then. To put it in my perspective, I never once considered myself a leader. Uh, I knew that I had, you know, leadership qualities, but it was something that other people would come. And again, to toot my own horn, it's just how I viewed the world. People would come to me asking for advice or asking for certain types of, you know, mentorship, whether it be creative or otherwise. And it was in that moment where people understood and gave me that reputation of being a leader, Mm -hmm. of showing this potential in doing so. So it's carried on with me throughout, you know, my life where it's just, I'm not going to proclaim myself as being such. I know that it is important for individuals to have that anchor point, have that person, have that, that thing in their life that assists them. If I am that person, great. If not, I hope to learn more has been my, my, my life motto because I know how important it is to be there for someone, but I also know the importance of being there for yourself and the willingness to know and to learn more. So Sebastian, you've got, we talked uh, the last couple of weeks about all of the history you've had with marketing and with publishing and narration, illustration, and YouTube, and all of these different channels where you've influenced in different ways. Can you talk a little bit about how did you actually, how do you see those things as building your influence and how does that relate to how other people can build their own influence? Maybe not in the same way, but how does that relate to how others build it? So as an artist, as I, as I said previously, there's, it's a two pronged approach where one is the create creativity aspect of it. And the other aspect is marketing. The first facet of that is a hurdle that I think a lot of people struggle with initially because, A, you could be in a position where you had this great idea, but you don't know how to put it on a page. Okay, that's something that unfortunately I can't help you with because that's just a big subjectivity argument. What you think is good and what I think is good are two totally different goods. Mm -hmm. Now, on the flip side of that coin, there are individuals who have a product. They have something that they want people to know about. They have something that I don't consider this as important, but that's, again, just subjectivity. They, they have something that people that they want people to care about. And I say that that doesn't so much apply to me because whether or not people care about a product of yours should no, in no way deter you from continuing to do so. There's that sort of expectation, expectational argument rearing its ugly head because a lot of people would rather think that their product being good determines their level of clout, you could say, of being an artist. Honestly, I don't think that should be the case. I digress. I know a lot of people may think differently. In marketing, <laughs> that is the most difficult part. I have some tools and strategies, and I'll just put it out as bluntly as I can of what's worked for me. It may not work for you, but I have found that in making a product, let's say you 
you've made the product. It's ready to be sold. Let's take books, for example, because that's my field. Publish the book. It could be bad. I don't care. Publish the book. <laughs> and then after that, start publishing more books. Hop on forums, hop on social media, do what you have to do to promote it. And keep doing that. It is a long and arduous process. I would say if there are other outlets for you to be creative in establishing that audience, do so. And do either as a promotion or do so because you happen to genuinely enjoy that medium. Back then for me, like I said, it was publishing books, but it was also YouTube. It wasn't being monetized. It was just an outlet for me to have another. Back then, I considered it another notch in my belt, quote unquote. However, I now know that that's an unhealthy way of looking at it because YouTube has, it was, it, it's been such a creative outlet that I unfortunately took it for granted in it being because I was so focused on it being monetized. I now have that new level of respect. I have grown as a person, but that platform that YouTube served as that sort of platform for me to propel that bookmaking process. Mm -hmm. And I did that over and over. I made bad campaigns. I made videos talking about it. I made little captions here and there. I went on social media back when I used to have Facebook and Instagram and Twitter. I feel so old at the young age of 23, but I used to... I was going to say, you're not old. Yeah. I'm um, only 30 years older than you. <laughs> but I used to, again, go with that sort of reckless abandon mentality where had a product, post about it. Whether or not people interacted with it, I don't care. It's in the ether. I feel good about posting it as opposed to me not posting it at all. Sometimes it would get, sometimes it would get a hit. Other times it wouldn't. But that's okay. I, I think... A a lot of people would probably stop when they realized that no reception was being had. Don't have that mentality. Understand why you wanted to. And I know that's very much easier said than done, but please. <laughs> please. Just don't care whether other people care or not. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> because going into why that's important, you know, is understanding why you chose to be an artist, why you chose to create in the first place. It wasn't, it wasn't because other people told you or, or put a gun to your head or threatened you to do. No, most artists, they believe that art should be as an, an extension of themselves, whether that appeals to a greater purpose or a higher power or, or some societal gain, that's up to them. I can't speak for that. But remember why you did. And don't let the I was going to say negative reception deter you, but also no reception deter you as well. That's about the best advice that I can give because at the end of the day, we're all just trying to find our own artistic you know, intellect, our own space. And simply put, you're never going to find it. You just never do. And again, thinking about your own journey, when you have a community of seven and then you have a community of 3,000, <laughs> it's both of those are, are valuable and good in different ways, but it's, it, it wasn't about the audience that made the audience come. Right. Another, no, it, you know. Yeah. It was, I'd like to hope that it was a mix of personality on my part, because I, I generally feel that I'm not too standoffish. <laughs> I know that there is a business that needs to be run. I know that there is a certain etiquette, but I also know that, 
transparency with your fans or with your clientele, with your audience, however you want to put it, isn't, I would go so far as to say that a lot of individuals, and I won't say it in my name, but a lot of individuals, a lot of YouTube channels or creators would put their audience on the back burner for the sake of money. Sure. Maybe that's their thing. Maybe their audience has come to expect that that little level of, of audience interaction. But with me, I understand why that's important, especially for a small channel in comparison. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's, it's monumental because it, it's a spark and that spark could potentially grow. And uh, it's, that's just been my personality where much like my whole pragmatic approach of I see a problem, I solve it. I see an audience or I see someone who wants to have a conversation or someone inquiring about something. I want to answer it. I want to assist in any way. that. One of the things I think you've talked a lot about narration. Of course, you do the YouTube, the audio stories and the various things through that. And you've done other forms of speaking. What that's an area that a lot of people are terrified by. The idea of putting their voice out into the world. Podcasting, whatever. So, how? What advice would you have to folks that maybe know this is something that they need to be doing, but they're they've got that fear or that that worry about doing putting their voice out into the public? I think for voice, it's the biggest threshold for people to cross. And, and you bring up a good point. I'll say it again, as I've said numerous times before on other podcasts. Public speaking is the, I think, the number one fear mm-hmm. above dying. Yep. Yeah, you'd rather be in the casket than give the eulogy. <laughs> you'd rather be in the casket be the one giving the eulogy. Um, exactly. But with speaking, I think it, and this is my opinion on it, but you can either take it or leave it. Speaking is that one threshold, that sort of final frontier that really connects the artist from the person. And what I mean by that is this. Say you have an individual who is very... You know, prominent online, they create content that you happen to enjoy. And in an abstract sort of way, you only know this person through their content, what they produce. In my case, it's something that people heard my my, my voice, but people never saw what I looked like. Now, mm-hmm. it doesn't take long to do a quick Google search and type in my name and you can see a bunch of results of projects that I made in the past and as well as different interviews and and photos of me that people can identify a name to a face. But in speaking, say I didn't create content that involved me speaking, it's very difficult for people to find the human behind that. And with speaking with someone who can either get on stage or get behind a microphone or just speak in general to, what's the word? that audience, I think it establishes that bridge between the person and the artist. I think if someone could get behind a camera or get behind a microphone and establish who they are, what they're doing, and why they're doing it, I think it creates more of a sense of validity. It creates more of a trust in the artist and audience relationship. And really, it does create that confidence building. Ironically, because it's very hard to get up on stage and speak. But once you get going, you're unstoppable, I feel. At least that's how it's been for me, where if you're confident in the topic, 
whether or not you look at the audience as being in their underwear, <laughs> I guess is like a strategy mm -hmm. or however you find ways to make yourself more comfortable on stage and in a way separate yourself from the audience in order to build up your confidence in, in speaking and doing so. Do what you need to do. Once that snowballs, once you get that confidence, you're retroactively unstoppable. My personal advice in doing so is to, and I've said this before, how much I had my gripe about college ever since, ever since the pandemic and we switched to virtual. Again, it's very abstract being on a Zoom call as opposed to being in person. But for the amount of speech classes, for the amount of communication classes that I've taken in college, those have probably been my favorite classes to take because repetition doesn't make perfection, but it does make experience. So if I can extend that suggestion in taking a class and doing so, or if either you don't have the time and money to do practice, mm -hmm. talk to yourself in the mirror, talk to yourself behind a microphone. Talk to your family, your friends, really start to come out of your own shell when it comes to expressions. Right now, I'm expressing behind the camera, you know, talking this week, but you can't see me. I'm hoping you can find the gesticulations of my hands and the, and the <laughs> nonverbal expressions or cues in my face while I'm speaking, because I hope to be as expressive as possible in order to further understand my point. But, uh, but I digress. It really is that practice that 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 establishes that bridge. Mm -hmm. you know, as an artist, as a person, as someone who can get up on stage and be like, "Yes, I can do." And even finding opportunities to speak for free. One of the pieces of advice I've given people is almost every Rotary Club, Lions Club, Chamber of Commerce, whatever they want speakers. Now they're not going to pay you, no. but or at least not initially, but that doesn't mean you can't go deliver a speech. If, if your topic fits into that audience, you do have to find an audience where it fits, but there's almost always an organization out there that's looking for a speaker to come talk on whatever it is you want to talk about. And that just gives you more time to bat, so to speak. There you go. Yeah. And start small. You don't have to go into the lion's den and, and speak mm -hmm. in front of a bunch of people, but just know that in being an artist, in establishing your popularity and in growing that, you're essentially going to have to do that anyway if you have content that people enjoy and are going to gravitate towards. Because mm. much like the whole seven to 3,000 comparison in my regard, you can look at it as speaking in front of two, three, five, ten, a hundred thousand people potentially. Mm. Then what? then you're going to have to learn how to speak in front of an audience. Mm -hmm. So hopefully you can garner that practice in the, in the meantime. Right. Yeah. Using the podcast. When I first started out and there was, my mother was downloading it and, and not every week, all the way up to the point of 30 or 40 downloads that was 30 or 40 people to several hundred or several thousand. It's natural, but it's also natural to now go, oh, I've only got X and somebody else has more. And yet that means I'm reaching that many people every week. So I wanted to talk a little bit about one other thing. I know from uh, talking to you before that you 
when you were starting out, one of the roads you went down was the idea of comedy, uh, mm. sac- satire, sarcasm, and then you changed direction. What, why did you go down that road? Why did you change direction? And how do you think that plays into this idea of influence and audience? So comedy, yeah, that was a short-lived experience for me. It's, I'd like to say, and again, subjectivity argument, I'd like to say that I still find myself humorous. I often crack jokes, whether it be at, you know, others' expense or certain societal issues' expense. I guess that's where the, the satirical element falls into play. With comedy for me, it was very much the way to bridge the gap, not only between my artwork and my audience, or should I say my now established audience, but a way to bridge the mold between like personality traits. A lot of people would probably go on record to say that uh, a funny person is entertaining. No duh. I'm going to watch this guy's content because it's entertaining. And I want to, to learn to not only learn more about the comedian, I don't consider myself a comedian, putting it in that perspective, but follow up on this content. In my life, I've had serious events happen to me. I won't go into the specifics. I, I think when it comes down to how one processes that severity, again, there's really no telling what one can do when they're in a state of maybe depression, maybe anxiety. I, I don't know. I was, I think, too young to self-diagnose in that regard. But comedy for me, much like other individuals, was a means of escape, but it was also a means of processing the world around me. It wasn't so much to scapegoat so much as it was to look at things, not so much in an idyllic light, but to understand what things were for what they were, even if they were crappy, and to find the humor in that. To find the humor in, say, uh, man around me, like the, the humans in general. Mm-hmm. In doing so, and growing up, I think everyone finds that phase of, uh, you know, nihilism or oh, the world around me sucks kind of mentality. I never so much had that phase so much as I had. I took it one step further and and was like, oh, the world around me sucks. But it's funny. It's not barren. It's not no man's land. There isn't, you know, a, a quantum of, of solace of hope in the world. I looked at that and I looked at the faults of the world and I was like, yeah, no, that's hilarious. And I think people should fix themselves kind of thing. Very, I wouldn't say egotistical of me of doing so because I was just a dumb teenager. But I think a lot of teenagers share that same regard. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Dissonance. Having taught teenagers for 16 years there you go but with but with satire and comedy i was very much um, entranced by particular authors one of which being mark twain is a very prominent figure in my life not only for the fact that i i've read his books i've even now i'm still grappling with them understanding what they mean because obviously written in a different time and I would go so far as to say that you you can't get away with what he did, and then or what he oh, said. No. <laughs> yeah. He said now, and I think it's that regard that I I more or less respect because it was a sign of the times, and 
even still to this day, people still making like truisms or like connections or correlations to it. I, I think that's where his work shines the brightest. But on a more personal note, I found out at a very young age that, and I'm hoping this is true. I, I had a lot of time to internalize this as well. I've just had to take my father's word for it for many years. Cause again, I was told this as a kid and it wasn't until fairly recently as an adult that I was like, Oh really? But apparently I am a descendant. I don't know how many levels, how many layers of secondary third cousins I am uh, of Mark Twain. Mm. Uh, it's not something that I like to attribute. It is, but it's not something that I like to gloat about rather. But I would say that if serendipity or karma or any kind of instrument of the universe exists, it is very kind of telling how he was a sat- satirist and I like to consider myself one. I definitely don't like to consider myself on the same playing field as him because <laughs> he is a man past his point of, of no return and he, and he made it work for him and I'm still living and I'm, I'm on podcasts making satirical jokes or I'm on YouTube making satirical content or, or stories, two different ball games. But that comedy was something that I really grappled with as a teenager and as a young adult, really, in understanding the world around me. Mm-hmm. And that was, like I said before, that was how I learned to process the world. Comedy, in regards to your question about how it would affect influence, I think it's very much, I'm speaking as if it was a lost cause, but I know it isn't. You know, the world has changed is what I'm getting at. I don't think certain barometers or measurements of comedy would really hold up now as it probably would have 20, 30 years ago. Maybe that's just a testament to how the world is changing, or maybe if pe- maybe people have gotten somewhat soft. I don't know, but I can't be the judge, jury, and executioner regarding that. I'd like to believe that people can still make jokes in certain company. I'd also like to believe that people can't internalize and compartmentalize every single aspect of someone of something someone says on Twitter and then ruin their whole career for it. I'd like to believe that that isn't the case, even though we see more and more instances of that. And that sucks. It really does that someone can just be Mm -hmm. shot down for some off-colored comment that wasn't even made to be off-colored, but it's someone else's interpretation of such that, that lends that person to go up in flames. So... And Twitter is actually a great example because the problem with Twitter is you've lost all context because yeah. it's such a an ephemeral. You don't usually see uh, tweet in their co- in a larger context. It's separate from that. Um, there is yeah. There's no room for context. There's no room for subtext. Even though people are going to interpret subtext a lot differently, and that'll bite you in the ass every in some time. way, shape, or form. Yeah. So that's just unfortunate unfortunately i really don't know how to answer that second part of the question because i don't know how the world will change tomorrow where it'll either make my statements obsolete or people will utilize me as their next scapegoat so (laughs) i'll i'll leave that one out in the open uh fair enough uh yeah i do think satire and sarcasm are valid ways of you know talking about the world Again, some of my favorite comedians 
are very sarcastic, satirical, point out the absurdity of the world and make you laugh about it. And and I do think it's a way sometimes because it, it's a closet way of making us recognize things that are true about us, but see them because it's brought to us through humor. Mm-hmm. We'll hear it in a way that if I just walked up to you and said, hey, you're being a jerk, you would push back. But by coming at it through satire and sarcasm, sometimes we'll hear it in a way that we wouldn't. At the same time, I think a form of comedy that that society often attacks the prophets. <laughs> no, yeah, it's I think for a lot of creators who delve into satire, it's either one way or the other, it's going to be difficult. A, it's going to be difficult in establishing your audience because if you happen to take a facet of satire, which is like dark humor, mm-hmm. looking at the world around you and then like doubling down on the jokes in a very, how do I put this nicely, but humorously negative way. In a dark way, yeah. In a mm-hmm. dark way, you end up potentially alienating a large majority of your audience. Now, if your audience enjoys that content, okay, you've just established that audience around that. And Mm -hmm. really, I guess the contrast would be if you made anti-jokes, for instance, that would be (laughs) the opposite. Mm -hmm. But financially speaking, corporations despise satire. Oh, absolutely. They despise dark humor. Of course, it's by the book. I think personally, if I can go on a little tirade for a minute, I think corporations are very tone deaf in understanding humor. And you can really look to, ironically, corporate Twitter for an example of that. Some corporations get it. Some like to push the Wendy's. Yeah, I was going to say Wendy's. Wendy's Um, is a great example of one that actually goes, no, we're going to mess with it. Wendy's essentially douses the the building in kerosene and then just lights it up and sits back and watches. But Mm -hmm. that is their brand identity alongside making food, you right. know? And I think a lot of businesses would be very hesitant in pursuing that, especially if they're a new company where, you know, pushing the envelope is something that I don't know, because you end up getting on a teeter-totter as an artist being like, if I want sponsorships, I have to make this content, but it's not content that I particularly enjoy. So am I really doing this for the content or am I doing this for a paycheck? And I think, suffice to say, I think a lot of people would, be stumped at that crossroads. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And again, this really isn't something new when it comes to comedy. It's different today, but it's not new. And what I mean by that is I think of people like Lenny Bruce, Gallagher, George Carlin, all of which had much of that dark, sarcastic, satirical, that was their brand. And because of that, there were people that loved them. And then they also got, you know, lots of, there, there were venues where they were never going to appear. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say George Carlin, I think, is probably one of the examples that I gravitate towards the most. Because mm-hmm. it, while I don't do stand-up in the traditional sense that he does, that man was in the Air Force. <laughs> mm-hmm. That is probably, I'm not dissing any of the other branches here, speaking from my own perspective as well, the Air Force is pretty put together <laughs> in, in a sense where, you know, attention to detail is essentially their their motto. So you end up having this, 
you end up seeing someone like Bob Ross, who's also in the Air Force, being put together in the manner that he is. And then you see George Carlin up on stage and be like, wait a minute, <laughs> you're telling me that, the, <laughs> that this guy flew planes, that this guy was uh, one of, I think you could probably attest to in some military terminology, I don't know, but like a grunt, a, mm-hmm. a, a, a product of the system. And he, an he airman. Out of, an airman, airman for the an airman. airman. Yeah, no, I, I should know that because uh, being an E3 myself, but it's one of those things where, uh, what is it? Being so put together and then having him be out on stage, I wouldn't say breaking out of his shell because only he would know that, but it's night and day with him. But I think it's also probably part of what gave him that ability because part of his whole Uber was pointing out the absurdity in the details that we all yeah. saw, but none of us paid attention to. Exactly. You yeah. know, the, the whole idea of when you're driving down the road and someone passes you, they're, they're, an, they're an idiot because they're going faster than you. And if someone's going slower than you, then, you know, they're a moron because now they're blocking traffic. Wait a minute. <laughs> it's a very it's a very fine line of looking at the world around you because you expect the rest of the world to be on your level. You expect the rest of the world to like adhere to your standards, which is very I would say I'm not sure if it would if it be nihilistic or bigoted or, or one of those, but I'm sure that there's a box that you can put yourself in that just wouldn't be good to an outsider looking in. Satire does that, but I think if you can find that audience and find an audience that not accepts your humor, but also understands why those jokes need to be made in today's society, you can really have a ball with it. You just got to spend a lot of your time looking. You can follow Sebastian on YouTube as Seabass Official, or find him over on his website at SebastianShug.com. He's also active on LinkedIn as Sebastian R. Shug. That's spelled S-C-H-U-G, and I'll have links to all of that over in the show notes as well. Sebastian, is there anything else you'd like to share with the listener? Yes. Scott, my friend, I just wanted to take this time and say that thank you very much for having me. Thanks so much for listening to the Inspired Stewardship Podcast. As a subscriber and listener, we challenge you to not just sit back and passively listen, but act on what you've heard and find a way to live your calling. If you enjoyed this episode, please do us a favor. Go over to inspiredstewardship.com slash iTunes rate, all one word, iTunes rate. It'll take you through how to leave a rating and review and how to make sure you're subscribed to the podcast so that you can get every episode as it comes out in your feed. Until next time, invest your time, your talent, and your treasures, develop your influence, and impact the world.